If you would like to buy your own copy of The Empire Strikes Back, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code US, UK, CA, AU, depending on where you're located. Rebecca Harrison is lecturer in film and television at the University of Glasgow in the UK and author of our BFI film classics book on The Empire Strikes Back. In part one of this episode, we contextualise the film in its time to discuss its political themes and the way the original trilogy revolutionised special effects practices. Then we take a step back to talk about the industry at large, including how franchises or big movie sensations deal with diversity, the way that the most recent trilogy deals with nostalgia, and how this connects to the current Hollywood trend of remakes, and much, much more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Rebecca Morofsky. And I'm Wayman Cam. And today we're speaking to Rebecca Harrison, author of The Empire Strikes Back, a book in our BFI series. Welcome to the show, fellow Rebecca. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thanks very much for having me on. I think a great way to start, just because this movie and the franchise itself is so iconic, if we could all just kind of go around and talk about what our associations and connections with it are. Becca, do you want to talk a little bit about what your relationship to this film is and even how you kind of started writing it? Yeah, so I mean, I've loved this film since I was a child. I remember watching it at my dad's house, I think, on a an afternoon when he was trying to keep us entertained and there wasn't much else to do and he put the Star Wars films on and I just I really enjoyed Return of the Jedi when I was like really tiny I think I was obsessed with the Ewoks and like really I loved the Ewok cartoons so people are like quite derisive about the Ewoks but they were like my entry into Star Wars fandom I remember seeing The Empire Strikes Back just being totally entranced by it really blown away and yeah and then I've, I've had this kind of changing relationship with it over the years obviously you know you you write a book about something you end up watching it over and over and over again and seeing different things every time so so yeah it's been a kind of changing relationship and one that I'm sure will develop more in future. What about you Ming? I don't actually remember the first time that I watched these films it was probably just like somewhere like on the tv And at one point, like I had, my dad definitely bought us all like an at-at toy and also like Luke's X-Wing with like the figurine. And we absolutely like played with like those to bits. And I just remember like quite enjoying the films, just like on a sort of supervisual like kid level. It was very entertaining. And then as I grew older, I really got into like science fiction and fantasy. And I'm still like quite a big like SFF nerd. But then like the newest trilogy kind of like brought me like really like back into like the whole, the whole saga. And I really enjoyed it. I think since then I've always just been like, it's definitely more of like fantasy in space, more like a hard sci-fi, if you see what I mean. But I think like the original trilogy, especially are just like really great, like blockbuster films. And I even still like enjoy the prequels for what like George was attempting to do despite the flaws. Yeah. To be honest with you, yes, I grew up watching this movie like a lot of people and I feel like I watched it a lot. But to be, yeah, to be totally candid, like I think growing up, my main 
image and takeaway still from this movie is a Carrie Fisher in a golden bikini. <laughs> oh, that's the next one. <laughs> is Carrie, it the next one? Yeah, oh, the Carrie, yeah, Carrie Fisher in the golden bikini is the is the return of the Jedi. Oh my God. So there you go. I'm such a noob that I completely conflated the two first movies. But yeah, I mean, I've watched this a ton of times. It's just interesting. I feel like all of the, the first three movies like really bleed into my head of like what happened with which, but I'm still very familiar with like the through line of the, uh, of kind of what happens in the original trilogy. But yeah, I gotta say like big Carrie Fisher fan, love Princess Leah. I think that was my big takeaway. was just like the Princess Leah stan culture and what resonated with me. But it's just interesting, I guess, just to hear people's vantage points for something that is so universally loved. But, you know, for the people who haven't actually seen The Empire Strikes Back, I was wondering, Becca, if you could just give a short synopsis of what actually happens in this movie. Sure. So the film opens with the rebels, so Luke, Leia and Han, kind of hiding out on the ice planet of Hoth, where they come under attack from the Empire striking back, as the title would suggest. And they all become kind of dispersed in different star systems on different planets, where they're trying to get back together and come up with a new plan to defeat the Empire. So Luke disappears off to Dagobah, where he goes in search of the Jedi Master Yoda and then undergoes a sort of training program to become a better Jedi. Meanwhile, the other characters, we have Han, Leia, Chewbacca and the droids. They all end up going on this kind of wild chase through an asteroid belt. They face many different dangers. They almost get taken by the Empire. And then... They all come together on Bespin, where they face Darth Vader and uh, kind of come back together again, ready to, to continue the fight in the next film. So I feel like even just, you know, the words that come out, the kind of resistance to the Empire, it's just there's actually so much, so many political undertones of this movie. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, kind of contextualize how this film was made, when it was made, where the kind of thoughts and production that were being considered at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's production history is so interesting in terms of where it, it kind of falls in the 20th century. So it's being made after the kind of peaks of the second wave feminist movement and the black power movements in the sort of 60s through 70s. But it's just before that kind of 80s Reagan, Thatcher, neoliberal, I don't know what word to use for that, but it would not be a good one but it kind of sits just in between those moments and I feel like that comes across in the film to an extent it's interesting to me that you get actually a quite progressive film at the end there's a the last kind of section of the film you have Leia uh, Lando as a black man you have Chewie you have the the droids who you know even in the 80s there were academics like Clyde Taylor who was writing about these aliens and the droids and saying, well, actually, they, they kind of are configured as racial others. So the kind of alien characters are, are conceived in this quite, well, actually just kind of quite racist way. So there's a, a sense of these like other marginalized characters coming together and they get a lot of screen time. And actually, they are on a rescue mission to try to, to save the white men. So there's a, an inversion of the, the kind of normal logic of a sci-fi film 
and the normal kind of patriarchal way of doing action that I think is really fascinating. But at the same time, you know, this is a franchise film. It's designed to make money. It's, you know, one of the first big temple blockbuster franchises of the second half of the 20th century. I think it was kind of unprecedented, really, the scale that Star Wars kind of blew up into. You've got toys, you've got merchandise. It's saleable, it's there to make bank. So I think it was kind of tensions between, I mean, all the way through these films, it's not just The Empire Strikes Back. There's this kind of constant tension between a slightly more progressive politics and the first Star Wars film, the rebels are often in discussions about the film aligned with Vietnamese people and like the the kind of struggle between the white imperial dominating other blowing people up, killing people, cultural dominance. Yes, yeah, so there's a, there's a long history of this in Star Wars. There's a question over how effective that is when it's being delivered in a big blockbuster film that's doing the same kind of cultural dominance that it's critiquing. If we look at the actual narrative as well, and I suppose we can talk about the, the through lines through the whole like original trilogy, what else is like political, basically explicitly and, and not so overtly like in the narrative of like Empire Strikes Back? There's a lot of implicit kind of subtext around politics of the Empire Strikes Back that I find really interesting. I was reading it through a a queer lens and thinking about the figure of Darth Vader at that point in time. So, you know, late 70s, the film comes out in 1980, and you've got this kind of dark-figured male character who actually in the film is not like explicitly not interested in women. So in the first film, he's kind of hunting for Princess Leia. He's looking for Carrie Fisher's character. But in the second film, when she's there, he's not interested in her. He just wants to find the men. And then he's in that kind of big showdown with Luke. He's trying to convert a white man, a young, blonde, attractive white man, to join the dark side. And I think there's a there's a kind of anti-queer subtext to that, or it at least maps onto the sort of anti-queer logics of that period of time and that we're now seeing being kind of replicated once again by the far right. So there's that kind of, I wouldn't, it's definitely not explicit, but it's, I think, one way of, of reading the film. And again, the racial politics of the film, it, they are not, explicitly discussed within the narrative but they are like I think they're quite clear you know you have a white actor playing Darth Vader but then he's dressed head to toe in black he's a kind of tall quite imposing figure and they the filmmakers hire James Earl Jones to be the voice of Darth Vader so he's racially coded as a black man and again, I think it, it kind of that scene with Luke really taps into a white anxiety about racial power and loss of control, where again, it's about the, the kind of white anxiety of a black man overpowering a white one. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot, you know, for all that you get the, the kind of short moments of marginalised characters saving the day. There's some really troubling politics in this film as well. And I, I, I don't think it's necessarily self-aware enough to, to know that that's what, what it's doing. But I, th- I think it's a very kind of, it's definitely there when you, when you watch it. 
something that I thought of when I was watching it the other night but also it kind of that kind of like weird tension between progressive and then kind of reactionary stuff which is not very self-aware I feel like also follows through to return the Jedi and you know you were talking about the Ewoks earlier and very clearly like now you're looking back you're just like that's kind of like a Vietnam war (laughs) Um, you know like analogy and it's just like it reminded me and I I've only in the last sort of couple of years started reading like Ursula Le Guin stuff, but it reminded me of um, her novella, The Word, Word for World's Forest, where basically like the clearly like coded as like very explicitly like the good guys are these essentially like it's set on like a very like greed forested like world. But like the explicitly like the good guys are basically like a race of alien monkey people, essentially. And like the antagonists, very clearly shown to be colonizers are like white humans, white human men. And on the one hand, you're just like, well, this is very clearly a progressive like narrative. And certainly, I suppose, like much more so than say like Return of the Jedi. But again, it's like in both of these like sci-fi narratives, like you're still you're still portraying like these colonized people as like basically like animal, like alien others. So it's a weird kind of like tension that like I kind of only recognised sort of in the last sort of couple of years now watching it back, which is always really interesting. Yeah, I think there's just there's so much that's difficult to to deal with the legacy of these kinds of films. Because yeah, I, I feel the same. Like I, you know, on the one hand, from childhood memory, the Ewoks are these cute teddy bears that run around in the forest and help save the day. But in reality that's there's so much more than that. And it's really troubling that that's the the kind of genesis of the the characters. And I think one of the things I've, I've sort of tried to get at, I don't know how successfully, but something that I'm really interested in doing in the book and in other work is to create spaces where we can have these conversations. Because I think, I mean, I have found it difficult in the past. I think it's a, a learning process for a lot of people, but it makes conversations extremely difficult when you're critiquing something that people have such big emotions about and are so nostalgic for, and it means so much to them, that often when you say, well, I mean, I, you know, you love it, but also it's really misogynistic, and it's really queerphobic, and it's really racist, and actually this is ableist. People struggle with that. And I think we all need to get better, some people more than others, at being able to to deal with that and to have those conversations and to to make distinctions between enjoying something and being able to critically engage with it. Yeah, I think I would love to talk more about how nostalgia has shaped this entire franchise because I think that we are just collectively coming up against this issue a lot because so many, you know, shows and movies are making new versions of themselves. And I think as a society, we have to contend on so many levels with, you know, re-examining these things that we grew up with, that we loved, that definitely shaped the way that we understand the world in ways that we we're still like learning to unpack. It's a painful process, I think, when you have such an emotional attachment to a movie and then you realize that it maybe harmed you in certain ways or like harmed the world in certain ways. But I think, as you said, there needs to be a kind of like media literacy where it doesn't have to be such a binary where like this movie is perfect. We don't have to say anything bad about it. It's untouchable versus no, it it's horrible. It's, you know, it's misogynistic. It's homophobic it's racist it's it's meant to be left in the past like there's something in between there where like you can have a nuance and I I think that 
through that, you know, critique, you can maybe even like love a movie even more or feel like more connected to it because you've like seen it for what it fully is. It's so interesting though. Like I've never really thought about Darth Vader coded as queer. And I'm, I really am the first person to think about things through a, a queer lens, but it's so real. It makes me think of like Jafar in, um, in The Lion King, just like how we do code the evil villain as both queer and black a lot. And actually maybe Lion King actually took a leaf out of the book of, of Star Wars for doing this. But yeah, I, I think there's so much that we could talk to talk about through through this lens. But I, I would also really like to think about the franchise's legacy in terms of how it revolutionized the way we even make movies. Like I think that when people saw The Empire Strikes Back, they had never seen special effects to that extent. And I think it really kind of inspired a whole new generation of filmmakers with those kind of special effects. So I'm wondering how how you feel the trilogy really revolutionized that kind of element of production. And do you think that it's changed through the life of the franchise over the last four decades? Yeah, definitely. I think the probably the, the biggest transformation that came in with The Empire Strikes Back was the use of basically computer-operated cameras. So before, if you were doing stop motion you were, and you wanted to include camera movement in your shot, you would need to keep doing that camera movement over and over again by hand. So you would end up when you were putting your different layers of shot together. So you might have your model in the foreground and then what's called a mat, so the kind of painted backdrop for your film in the background you would end up with these black lines. I'm doing hand motions as if anyone can see me, but I'm doing, but the, you would end up with these kind of black lines around the model where the, the camera movement didn't quite line up every time. And you would see the difference between the different layers of film. So what the camera operated uh, the computer operated cameras changed was the, the accuracy of that movement. So you could set them up, and then just run the camera over and over and over and over again along the exact same path. So that made for a much, much cleaner composition. I mean, the, the special effects were, I mean, it's really quite, I can't remember the exact numbers, but there's, I think, something like 300, or just over 300 composited shots in The Empire Strikes Back, which I think might be the most out of the original trilogy films. So for every single one of those shots, you're working frame by frame to put together all of these different elements. And some of them had models, so the, the at-ats that you see on Hoth, and then live action. So again, on Hoth, you would have people looking like they're swooping around in, in spacecraft. And then you've got the actual glacier that they were filming on, and then you might have a, a painted map skyline in the background so I mean there's a huge amount of informational going on there that is despite some of the computerization being done by hand so you know these the people working for you know basically round the clock in specialist facilities to, to put all of these these shots together I mean that was all quite new I think there were other people working on similar technology at the same time that was then used for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which came out around the same time. But what was really interesting when I was reading trade papers and, you know, kind of cinematography journals that came out 
at the time and through interviewing some of the filmmakers is that they have a real sense of being connected to the past. And you get the sense that they don't think that what they were doing was super revolutionary. They were taking existing techniques and moving them forward. So, you know, they were, I think, calling up filmmakers who had worked under the studio system in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s and saying, this knowledge is gone. How did you do this? What were you doing? What tech were you using? And then they were taking that 1940s, 1950s tech and actually adapting it for their needs. So I think one of the cameras on the Empire Strikes Back, one of the Vista Vision cameras, I don't think there's any kind of official sign off on this, but it was apparently one of the cameras that was used for Gone with the Wind. And then it had kind of been kept in a storage facility somewhere and not used. And then it kind of got brought back out again and adapted. So yeah, I think it's, there's a, a, a balance, I think, between talking about how far these films pushed special effects in a new direction and also taking care to acknowledge that this all came from somewhere. It was building on existing work. Right. I think it's important to understand that the movie didn't occur in a vacuum and that it is building on a legacy of filmmaking for sure. Kind of connected to our conversation about just like the politics that came out of the movie or that are implicit in the script itself. I was also curious about, you know, not just this, the special effects, but just like the logistical like amount of labor that was required to actually make this movie think about just how what an ambitious undertaking this movie must have been with all of its characters, with all of the costumes, with all of the sets. Like it's just prolific if you really think about it. And yeah, do you have any insight about what the kind of labor practices were like on this set? Yeah, as you said, like just an enormous undertaking. And the couple of people that I've interviewed often use almost like military terms to describe it. And they had to because when they were, I went out to Finza in Norway in 2020 to interview some of the crew, which is the the glacier where they shot the Hoth scenes. And like the conditions there are just unimaginably difficult. It was reasonably good weather when I was there. There was a whiteout at one point, which was quite scary, even though I knew I was, you know, safe. The winter that they filmed out there, or I think it was maybe the springtime, actually, it was just horrendous. So, you know, cast members were being snowed in on, you know, there's one train line that goes through this place you know, twice a day. It's extremely remote. Uh, I think uh, Harrison Ford got stuck. He almost got stranded overnight, like halfway along through these mountains. There were snow drifts, you know, so there were all the trenches that they were digging for the rebel fighters to be kind of firing at the imperial invading forces from. Every time they dug one of these trenches, it would fill with snow immediately. They had huge problems getting stuff up onto the glacier. So there were stories about equipment kind of falling off of skidoos and tumbling down the mountainside. It was just the shoot kind of kept going on and on and on. It was hard for them to get the aerial shots because the helicopters couldn't get clear enough days to take off. And of course, people are in those conditions responsible for the safety of of the people working around them. You know, the cameras and equipment were all freezing and wouldn't work properly in the the low temperatures. So, yeah, I I mean, that part of the shoot just sounded kind of mind blowingly difficult. But then, of course, there was also the the studio shoot, which is where the rest of the film was being made back in kind of just outside of London. 
And I mean, that also sounded really difficult. They built this huge studio space and then tried to put a swamp in it, which is a challenge. Apparently, Mark Hamill had a terrible, terrible time. He was often shooting on his own with, you know, the Yoda puppet. Frank Oz is the the voice of the puppet and there are puppeteers, but they're all basically underneath the stage. So you're not interacting with any anyone within your eye line. There were aerosols being used to kind of create the, the sort of ice effects on interior sets. Apparently, the aerosols were really overwhelming. Carrie Fisher would pass out. The steam was really hard for everyone to deal with in some of the, the fight scenes later on. It just like every possible technical difficulty that you could run into on a film, they threw it in there. So, yeah, I think the conditions were challenging to say the least, uh, but I got a sense that there was a, a kind of generally a kind of camaraderie between people. Though that said, speaking to one of the very few women on the set, that took some work. And I think it took a long time to be accepted on a mostly male team i am like about halfway through the book it's it sounds like an incredibly difficult production sort of like building off what you just talked about that it was mostly a male team i don't think although obviously we we feel like things have moved ahead i don't think sort of like structurally things have moved ahead as much as we like to think in the movie industry Certainly we have, you know, the latest trilogy with like the actors, the reaction to John Boyega, Kelly Marie Tran. It certainly doesn't feel like we've actually moved forward. With regard to the original trilogy, Empire Strikes Back, can you perhaps talk a little bit about how marginalised, not just actors, but also like the, the crew members, the workers behind that were treated during production? And how do we sort of like, what's the through line from that into you know, the current day sort of like how not just Star Wars, but other like franchises like deal with diversity, both in front of and behind the camera. Yeah, I mean, the the difficulty with talking about the conditions for marginalised cast and crew for those early Star Wars films, and probably I haven't done this for the prequels yet, but I'm going to I'm going to guess it's actually worse because representation in those films is worse. It's just finding people to who have the capacity to speak about these issues because for so many people, if you spoke out at the time, it would be career ending. So you just sucked it up and got on with it. The experiences of one of the camera crew who Madeline most, she was a, she worked in camera crews and a cinematographer and on various different films. She's actually credited as a cameraman on the Empire Strikes Back because there is no such thing as a camera woman There's also other academics have done quite interesting work on the credits given to women working in sound. So often Foley artists would be credited as something else, kind of sound assistants, because it meant that by having a more junior credit, they couldn't get union access. So there's all kinds of ways that the film industry has worked to keep people marginalised by gender, by race, and so on out of production roles. Yeah, from what I gather, Carrie Fisher spent a lot of her time with Madeline and also with the women in hair and makeup because there were no other women for her to talk to on the set. So whereas normally you would have the stars kind of sticking to themselves, that just wasn't the case on this film. It just couldn't happen because you were pushed out of those spaces. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it doesn't paint a great picture. And I really don't 
think that we've gone anywhere near far enough in making those changes yet. When you look at the stuff that John Boyega and Kelly Marie Tran have extremely bravely come out and talked about like quite openly about their experiences of, of Star Wars, not just on the set, but, but of the fans. I mean, it, it just shows how far there is still to go. And I think one of the things that really struck me doing research around The Empire Strikes Back was looking at film criticism. And of course, I think it's it's so easy to say, oh, but things were different then. And you think, well, yeah, but things were different five minutes ago. So what? that's not an excuse. And of course, people at the time knew what they were doing. They knew what they were writing. It's not like people weren't having the exact same conversations in 1980 as they are having now to suggest otherwise ignores you know, the, we mentioned second wave feminism, black power movement, many other kind of political movements that were going on at the time. And yeah, you see film critics being really quite explicit in their attempts to undermine both Carrie Fisher and Billy Dee Williams. And it's extremely sexist and it's extremely racist. You know, it's not to suggest that's the the only contributing factor in the way that a lot of fans, particularly of a certain age, act now and the kind of discourse around ownership of these films, which is extremely toxic. But you can't help feeling like people have grown up with these films, but also grown up with that kind of discourse and thinking that that's okay because that's what they read in a mainstream national newspaper. And again, it's just about like we don't have the enough media literacy for people to to kind of get to the next step and think, well, actually, I'm going to be critical of the criticism. So, yeah, I think it definitely plays a role in this like ongoing, sometimes I think over-hyped by the press, but definitely this kind of ongoing battle over like who is Star Wars for, who gets to be a fan, what does representation look like? Yeah, I think it's still quite poor. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, this idea of who owns Star Wars, because it is one of these things that has created, the fans have created so many like sort of supplementary universes that it's, that must be such a difficult conversation. And I think it's particularly difficult when you think about it in relationship to nostalgia. Just, I think that's coming up so much recently where we, we take these things that we loved from the past and we try to remake them and I find most of the time it doesn't work that well because often the producers have not done enough work to like resolve some of the, you know, kind of messed up things that they were doing in the first place or the problematic kind of dynamics. And what they've done is just they've like diversified the crew as a means of like giving the show or giving the movie a new layer of paint or something but I I find most of the time they haven't like really resolved the issues that made it problematic in the first place and it's it's like so much more glaring now because of how much more refined our discourse has become around issues of identity like this so I'm just yeah I'm wondering how you feel the most recent trilogy has dealt with those issues of nostalgia and how it kind of connects to the ongoing Hollywood trend of remakes. Like the criticisms that you're talking about, about the original, I mean, you're saying that they haven't done enough, but yeah, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, that's a really difficult question because I think that as with so many conversations that play out in online spaces, there can be a lack of nuance 
And then it becomes really difficult to move past a certain position. So I think we've maybe fallen too far into the trap of nostalgia is bad or nostalgia is toxic. Nostalgia is the problem. We shouldn't be nostalgic. And I think that goes hand in hand with a kind of, to my mind, quite elitist mode of criticism that says fan service is a problem. Fan service is bad. Nothing should be done for the fans. You think, well, all of these films are being done for the fans. You know, that's the nature of a blockbuster franchise that's made nine multi-million dollar films. Like, of of course, they're going to be doing things to keep their fans engaged. That's part of the deal, I think. But yeah, I mean, there are definitely critiques of nostalgia, which are really important to keep in mind. I mean, people have associated nostalgia with the aesthetics of fascism, which... You know, we are in a what seems like never ending slide towards the far right. So, I mean, it's it's impossible to, to sort of disagree with that at the moment. You know, it creates this cozy idea that the past was a better place and that that's what we should be aspiring to. And often that past is one that is patriarchal, white and colonial. So that's difficult to to get past. That said, I think that isn't always what nostalgia does. And it does play other roles in our lives. And it can actually be quite a constructive and useful thing. And I don't think that we should be beating ourselves up for enjoying something that feels recognisable, comfortable, exciting, reminding us of something that we really enjoyed as children. I mean, that's not the only mode of representation. And it's not the only thing we should be consuming but people's lives are hard I mean why why would you not think that that's okay for you know in in some contexts and why shouldn't Star Wars draw or or the Marvel franchise and so on draw on nostalgia I think it's about the balance and I don't think they always get that balance right and, and kind of taken in context looking at the bigger picture there is this yeah much more insidious use of nostalgia in our politics that we should pay attention to.